Hi, I'm Andrew, the original Termination Shop Shop, and I'm here today with my guest presenter for this week, Walker Lee. Uh, welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast, where we talk about all things CDR and SRM as I sit here slightly bored on a car charger waiting for my car to get to full charge. Welcome hey, to the show, Walker. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. Okay. We've got so organized this week, we've actually got an agenda, haven't we? So um, what do we got this week? What's going on? Uh, there's lots to talk about. Uh, so we've got, uh, firstly, there's a uh, there's been an announcement in the UK as to some startup uh, CDR carbon engineering companies that have gotten some UK government money. Uh, there's Not also the actual the carbon engineering company, though. That's Canadian. Um, uh, we'll go through that in detail because you've done some homework on that. I haven't. I was too lazy and disorganized. Um, and what else have we got? Uh, let's see. There's a, a bill we can talk about in that's uh, been introduced in the United States Congress. Uh, it's a bipartisan bill that hopes to amend the caption, uh, Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage Tax Credit Amendments Act, which hopefully that's, can... Uh, that's, the cap, is that, that's the CAPTCH Act, isn't it? Yeah. That's, all, that's about all I know about it. So again, you've done lots of research. I haven't done any. Mm-hmm. Um, and what else we got? Uh, and then there's a couple papers talking about uh, geoengineering in all its wonderful forms. Uh, there's one about uh, aluminum uptake by marine diatoms, which are, uh, I think, single cell like algae type organisms. And then yeah, another yeah. one. Uh, no, they're not. Cell- no, I don't think they're single cell there. They're very uh, yeah. small though. My marine uh, biology isn't great. And then, yeah, one more on uh, the effects of solar geoengineering on, um, on crops and crop yield. Okay. Right. Yeah, I know a small amount about that, but um, so uh, what should we start on? Should we get the uh, solar radiation management stuff out of the way? And then uh, we've got loads of CDR to go through this week, haven't we? So um, we'll get the solar radiation management out of the way. And then uh, people who aren't interested in CDR um, can then go and have their tea or uh, watch Coronation Street or whatever it is they would be doing if they weren't listening to the Review 2 podcast. So um, uh, we start from the back and go forwards. Um, The the paper on... um, Crops. Uh, there are a couple of papers actually. Was wasn't there that's come out recently? There's one um, by David Keith and one by Ben Kravitz. Um, uh, what was the one that you wanted to talk about? Uh, the one that I looked at came out of Harvard. Uh, it was the one that David Keith worked on. Yeah. So the one, the other one was uh, uh, Ben Kravitz, and that was in Nature, Food, and Sustainability, I think, uh, or Nature, Food. I can't remember the title of the journal, but something like that anyway yeah um, uh, the so, one i'm looking at out of i think out of harvard is also out of uh is out of nature food all oh, right okay fine is uh ben kravitz on the author list if i managed to get oh uh, it's not on that one. It, it yeah uh i'm not familiar with the kravitz paper but the one i'm looking okay. at is out of nature food and it has uh uh yuan fan as the lead author and i think they're yeah, yeah. at harvard and then david keith is a co-author and he's definitely at harvard yeah you are entirely correct on that um, so, uh, what did they discover? Uh, so uh, what's the title of the paper, by the way, because we haven't got the title. Oh, of- yeah, that's a good idea. Um, so, the title of the paper is Solar Geoengineering Can Alleviate Climate Change Pressures on Crop Yields. In spite of all of the obvious nonsense that's been talked about this subject over the past 10 years, it's now confirmed that all of the fuss that was made was, in fact, groundless, which is nice. 
Yeah. So um, the 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 sum a quick summary of the paper is it sounds like they did some uh, they did some simulations where they tested multiple types of solar geoengineering. So not just stratospheric aerosol injection, but also marine cloud brightening and uh, cirrus cloud thing. And uh, it sounds like uh, they uh, in those simulations they they tested for the effects on global yields of lots of different crops: uh, rice, wheat maize, cotton, soy, sugarcane, and uh, generally speaking, um, decreasing the surface temperature in these scenarios was the best way to protect crops from the worst effects of global climate. Which relatively increases soil moisture, doesn't it? So the, uh, despite the fact that you have um, a reduction of the hydrological cycle, the reduction of the hydrological cycle also works over land in that you get less evapotranspiration out of um, uh, out of uh, the soils around plants and also because they're compared to a, a low co2 world with no srm the plants don't kind of breathe as much right the, the stomata in the um uh, in the plants remain closed because they only need to open to let in co2 and the more that they open the more water they let out so the plants do better when there's a carbon dioxide rich atmosphere, which is why greenhouses pump carbon dioxide into the air, and um, and they do better when, or many crops do better when the soil moisture is high because they're water limited. So rice obviously grows in very wet conditions, normally underwater, but there are plenty of other crops that grow in intermittently dry conditions like wheat, and if you don't have enough water to make the wheat grow in the winter before it dries off to harvest time, then um, it doesn't get very big. So um, it doesn't really surprise me that this has been discovered. The other thing about these um, experiments are often, or these modeling experiments are often done very, very badly is that they assume that all farmers are idiots. And if you've got a, a crop that doesn't do well in a particular area, the boneheaded farmer just keeps planting it again and again and again, as if um, you know, they're incapable of learning from their mistakes. Whereas obviously in reality, they would just change the crop that they're growing. They wouldn't just, um, uh, they wouldn't just continue doing something that didn't work and hadn't worked every year for the last 10 years. Um, they changed what they were doing. And, and loads of agricultural models don't seem to realize that that happens. They, they're just sort of blind to farmers changing what they do, which is, Makes you you have to take in with a pinch of salt a lot of the agricultural research has done because if they don't take into account that effect and then they forecast doom and gloom then it's not a very accurate prediction really. I think you make a really good point about climate models taking into effect human decisions that change over the next I don't know 50, 100 years or so that um most uh most climate model experts who are who are writing the uh, the climate model code and uh, designing experiments probably are not experts in uh, every other field like agriculture. So if you've got a, um, if you've got something that could change, uh, like farmers deciding which, which crops to plant, then uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's something that you would need to take into account during a, a simulation. And uh, it's, it's certainly not something that I would think to, that I would think to, to look to change. Uh, I, I don't know to what extent um, this changed in the, uh, the Harvard simulations in the paper. I don't actually have access to the full paper uh, right now. I'm just looking at the abstract because it's behind a paywall. Uh, I'm but I'm reading an analysis um, on uh, ASIO CleanTech, and uh, yeah, it's um, they don't go into very much detail into the actual simulations, 
Um, but that's a really interesting point as to whether or not they might have accounted for um, crops changing if. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, they, they said that there wasn't a big detrimental change to yield. So, you know, that effect wouldn't be overwhelming. But yeah. where people do predict an overwhelming um, uh, detrimental change to yields and then they fail to account for changing planting, then you, you can really take the whole paper with a pinch of salt because that just isn't how things work in the, in the real world. Like, yeah. People just don't, you know, if, if you've got a, a growing mean, climate change, is quite a gradual process. It doesn't happen. You know, overnight, obviously, you get extreme weather events that are associated with climate change that happen very suddenly. But in the main, the, cl the climate itself changes quite slowly, and people are pretty good at adapting to various different things. You know, be that by you know creating a porch in their house so that they get shade from the heat, or they um, uh, or they plant different crops in their farms. I mean, none of that's to trivialise the effects of climate change. Obviously, it's a very serious problem. But you know, people aren't dumb, and they don't continue to do things that don't work when obvious solutions are available to them like changing crops right i yeah i think that's really interesting it, it the uh this this thought that um whether simulations take into account um changes in human activity that could apply to lots of different methods of adaptation not necessarily just changing the kind of crops that they plant um like it's uh, i imagine that uh depending on how bad climate change gets we could see an exodus of people from the hottest regions of the world uh such as uh, as perhaps the Middle East or, yeah, or, or, the, or the wettest regions. I mean, it's, it's much more difficult to adapt to flooding than it is to adapt to heat. Yeah. You fit an air conditioner and stay indoors when it's hot in the heat. And obviously, that's not to trivialize the fact that many people don't have access to reliable electricity and air yeah. conditioning loads themselves make the grid unreliable in hot weather. So, you know, again, not wishing to be flippant, but people do adapt and they can adapt. But it's a lot easier to adapt by fitting an air conditioner in your house than it is to three uh, foot of water in your living room. Come yep. on, George. I have to go and unplug it now, otherwise I'll get a fine. I'm still here, though. No problem. Yeah, that's something I don't know very much about at all, is how um, changes in human activity are accounted for in different climate models. I know that in different background scenarios that we use in uh, solar geoengineering runs, the, uh, the SSP is like SSP... 2.45 and SSP 5-85. I know those account for different changes in human emissions and different uh, aerosol and uh, greenhouse gas forcings, but uh, I don't know how, um, to what extent they account for uh, changes in human activity in response to uh, um, response to climate change. And I wonder if, if there is something that's accounted for, I wonder if it's a dynamic, um, something that's coded dynamically where if you assume that certain temperatures in certain areas get too high, you can assume that people might start to emigrate away from those areas, or whether if that um, that change in population statistics is uh, hard-coded into the, the programming. So you might see people start to move in between 2050 and Yeah, I think um, much or most of the behavior is actually hard-coded, and certainly ag models, where I would have thought ag models would be the one of the things that would be you know, most logically flexible because people make a choice season by season what to plant. I mean, there are kind of areas of the world where people just plant one crop, but most of the time, you know, people don't only have one thing that they grow, right? They, you know, you might have barley in one field and then wheat in another field and carrots in another field, right? Certainly, yeah, that sounds did, there's a there's a very mixed economy for, for agriculture. Yeah. But, um, and, and so people are constantly going to be making quite reasonable decisions about what they do and don't want to plant on a regular basis, right? But 
But that, anyway, we can't go on about that all night, can we? So um, unless there's anything else on that, um, we can uh, set aside some of the doom and gloom stories. Um, while we're um, uh, chuntering along on a podcast, if you've got your web browser open, you might be able to learn enough about Ben Kravitz's paper to um, uh, regale the listener with um, uh, tales of what he discovered. But uh, I'll wait for a quiet moment in the podcast before you... Um, uh, I put on a spot about that. Um, so, what's the next one? We're going to do another bit of solid geoengineering, aren't we? Now, so what was the other one that you found? Uh, well, the other uh, the other paper I was looking at was uh, it was not about solar geoengineering at all. It was about the effects of uh, aluminum on uh, uh, plankton and or uh, algae uh, production and transport of carbon. Uh, I'm not sure there's anything else on solar geoengineering on my agenda right now. Uh, don't get me wrong. Well, I mean, that's quite an interesting thing because you say that, but um, one of the bits of work that I tried, I kind of started on, did manage to finish, was um, looking at the solar impact of um, uh, plankton growth because the plankton is a different colour mm -hmm. from um, the background ocean. And um, I would have thought it would have been brighter. And my hypothesis was that it would be brighter, but apparently plankton is darker in the infrared. And so having a plankton bloom actually makes, um, uh, you've got a kind of albedo darkening effect that results from um, uh, this infrared absorption. So uh, a, a counterintuitive effect there and one that, um, as far as I'm aware, since my um, failure to finish that paper and get it out, we managed to present it in a conference in Germany at one point, but that was as far as it went, didn't get into the literature. Uh, I'm rather hoping that someone more competent myself could come along and finish that kind of work and inform society as to, what the um, albedo consequences of phytoplankton fertilization are, but um, that's a story for another day. Back to the plot, which is aluminium, of course. So um, I tried to find out about this and work out whether you could use aluminium for um, ocean iron fertilization. Obviously, it wouldn't be iron fertilization, it'd be ocean aluminium fertilization. Um, but I didn't get any sense out of anybody. So I'd love to come along on the podcast and, and, and give people an a great insight into how we might sensibly use um, aluminium as a way of manipulating the climate system, but um, I'm afraid I can't. So, do you have any idea, Walker, or not? Yeah. So, um, the uh, the papers in uh, we're going into the realms of uh, bioengineering and biology, which is a little bit outside my comfort zone. But I think I got a general sense of what the paper is about. It's um the paper is is sort of a proof of concept where it demonstrates that they took a bunch of different types of algae. I think they, they called them marine diatoms, but I didn't know what that meant. So I Googled it and I think it just, I think that just means algae. And yeah, the uh, little, um, the, no, the little hard shelled, um, uh, I, I can't remember the plants or animals, but they're, they're, they've got little tiny hard shells, right? Um, uh, oh yeah, no, yeah, I found it. It's um, just Googling diatom, it says, uh, a single-celled algae which has a cell wall of silica. Many kinds are planktonic, and extensive fossil deposits have been found. Okay. Yeah, and they're very pretty, aren't they? They've got they're like snowflakes. They've got loads of different types of shapes and all different yeah. forms. But um, the, the, the question is whether you could actually actively manipulate um, aluminium in the ocean to try and um, change the levels of these right? Yeah, and I, I think the um the sort of the core understanding of the paper is that there um 
they said it's been suggested before that L, uh, aluminum or aluminium, depending on which country you you live in, uh, it's uh, it it has a it's been thought that it has an effect somehow on the the carbon cycle in um, in diatoms. But it's in this paper they demonstrate it uh, conclusively by introducing different uh, aluminum contents to uh, to I. Uh, yeah, I understand that, but. But there's a world of difference between that working at a microscopic scale and there being any realistic possibility of doing that at a macroscopic scale, right? Well, so absolutely. it may be, for example, that there are just no parts of the ocean which have got aluminum limitation, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and the the alter there are plenty of other alternative reasons. It might be that, that the amount of nutrient that's needed is so large or so costly um, that it that it's not worth doing, right? Um, so I, I, I'd love to have some answers on this because I really feel people tune in for this kind of stuff, but unfortunately I don't know. And it's not like I haven't tried to find out either. So if anyone does know, can they let us know? Because that's really interesting. Yeah, there's a, um, well, there's a, uh, they, in the discussion and conclusion section of their paper, they, uh, extrapolate the, uh, their results from, uh, a laboratory to, have uh, you, okay. have you actually read a paper, like the whole thing? Uh, not word for word, but I've gone through it and looked out the. I looked specifically I say, at the. You can't have people who've actually read papers on the Review of Two podcast. That's very much not what our brand is about. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, um, yeah. Uh, so, the, what the conclusion suggested that this is something that could be manipulated, then, or what? Yeah, it's uh, well. There's one. There's one really interesting sentence which I'll I'll read out uh, word for word. Uh, the results imply that addition of aluminum in the upper ocean in the range of 400 to 200 nanomolar, uh, uh, so 40 to 200 parts per billion, could lead to significant, as in several orders of magnitude, increase in the amount of POC, that's some abbreviation for, I think, organic carbon, uh, export PCO2? No, POC. Uh, it's hang on. There's a, uh, it's, a, it's called uh, particulate organic carbon. Okay, uh, right, yeah, it's it's carbon produced as decomposition from the the diatoms. Yeah, marine marine slow snow basically, right? Yeah. So it says uh, the results imply that addition of aluminum in the upper ocean in the range of forty to two hundred nanomolar could lead to several orders of magnitude increase in the amount of particulate organic carbon exported to depths of a thousand meters and below. Um, so, yeah, so there's a, a lot more to take in, obviously, in a huge. My spidey sense is definitely tingling when they say that because yeah. that depends on a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, so, firstly, I find it very surprising that no one has noticed that these organisms use aluminium to that extent and it's a limiting nutrient when people have been focusing on other stuff like nitrogen and iron and things like that otherwise. Um, so, I know that it's not only diatoms that they're trying to fertilize with, with those other nutrients, but the idea that, that, that kind of supplementation will, um, that they it won't hit any other type of nutrient limitation makes me a bit skeptical, right? My, my suspicion is that the true picture might be somewhat more complicated than has been depicted there. Yeah. It's, um, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that it's certainly more complicated um, they go on to talk about how uh, aluminum might get deposited, and it says the the concentrations of dissolved aluminum in the upper ocean are strongly uh, related to dust deposition, 
Um, yeah, and that was exactly where I would expect it to come from. So, yeah. so generally speaking, you've got a um, a negative feedback loop on climate there. So yeah. the uh, as you um, or no, is that a positive feedback? Yeah, it's a positive feedback because it makes it it makes extremes more extreme, basically. So yeah. generally speaking, you get more dust when the hydrological cycle is weaker because you get less plant cover. There's more deserts in um, on on Earth, and the um, the soil is drier, so it gets whipped up by the wind more. And so I, I think this dust deposition hypothesis is one of the ways that people think that ice ages. Not necessarily the only thing that ends an ice age, but mm-hmm. one of the things that contributes to this instability of a, of a well, actually, technically, it's a glacial versus an interglacial period, right? So, as the wind whips up the dust from the dry plains in um, in a, a cold world, that pulls more carbon out of the air and makes the cold world colder. So, you, it's uh, it's a positive feedback that means that you tend to get runaways, and those will. That's why the or possibly one of the reasons, in combination with others, that you get this kind of flip flopping between glacial and interglacial periods, right? This this Aeolian yeah. dust load that comes into the ocean and provides fertilization. Mm-hmm. But my instinct is that this this story's going to run, right? There's that that paper won't be the last word on it. Definitely. I don't know whether that that equates to a practical method of support or just a theoretical, you know, just having one little bit of the ocean where you might be able to. Get that kind of increase doesn't equate to something that's practical and deliverable over the whole ocean. One of the things that people have repeatedly said to me is that you get um, uh, a kind of nutrient competition um, situation arising. So as soon as you take off, for example, the iron limitation, you get a huge bloom of phytoplankton, but then you get um, then you hit your nitrogen limitation or your phosphorus limitation or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think we ever hit potassium limitation in the ocean because it's everywhere. But um, you, um, but basically, other nutrients go into limitation. So the, the the supposed enormous blooms that you get are not necessarily sustainable, and that's one of the many reasons why um, ocean iron fertilisation has largely fallen out of favour is because they um, the, the blooms are not necessarily as sustainable as a small dose in a small area would suggest they are. The other, the other issue with marine snow as being a way of dealing with climate change is that the benthic ecosystems, I think that's the right word for them, um, the, basically the mud on the seafloor and all the stuff that falls down into it, mm-hmm. is um, you'd have to, to do anything meaningful about climate change, you'd have to kind of ramp that process way, way, way higher up than it has ever been designed to go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it wasn't designed, but it, you know, in the, in, in the natural state of the earth you're just not sequestering that much carbon by exporting into benthic ecosystems yeah my understanding is you're roughly looking around an order of magnitude more in a heavily ocean fertilized world than you would have from um uh from like natural sequestration right so um it's not a uh it's not a small matter right um uh, yeah, I uh, I got the impression from uh, if I mean if we really were to take this paper and run with it and and uh, I I get the impression that uh, increasing the export of uh, of carbon to to lower depths in the ocean I I don't think it would solve global warming by itself I um an increase I mean an increase in uh, by an order of magnitude it would depend on how much you're exporting in the first place and uh, I I have no idea 
what the uh, the magnitude. Well, the, way, the, way I, the way I've come to think about this, rightly or wrongly, I'm, this is certainly not an area that I've got a great deal of expertise on, which yeah. is you know, exactly why I come on the Review Two podcast to talk about. It. That's what we're all about. Um, the uh, it, you know, it's not like kind of planting a few trees on land. It's more on the scale of you know chopping down every forest in the whole world. You know that kind of scale of change is what people are envisaging if yeah. they're going to be doing you know very large scale um export of carbon to the deep ocean layers and that that can do all kinds of horrible things to not only ecosystems but potentially um the atmosphere as well so um uh you know when 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 the ocean when the ocean um goes anoxic which is what you have to have to stop carbon oxidizing and then coming back to the into the atmosphere sure. that's associated with mass extinction so you know this is very much a fringe of my knowledge here and i certainly don't want to overclaim my expertise but I, yeah my my understanding is that it, it's now people kind of think of ocean iron fertilization and related technologies as being really quite a dangerous technology and one that one that probably doesn't have a large place in the mix now maybe there are ways of doing these things i mean you've got startups like running tide um, if we actually we did mention that in the intro, did we? The um, uh, stripes um, climate. There's a link if ever there was one. True reviewer style, mid flow on one thing, get distracted, realise it's another <laughs> thing on the agenda. So stripe um, have been good eggs and funded Project Vesta and a whole bunch of other stuff um, previously, and that was about a year ago. And they got some kudos and actually got some customers as well because they've now created their own api so you can instead of just plugging in stripe to pay for jumpers and all of the other things that people do on the interwebs when they're buying things they've now got an api where you can get stripe branded carbon sequestration and the, the thing that's quite nice about what stripe have done is that they they're actually doing it properly so there's none of this kind of like offset nonsense where they claim to plant trees and then you find that 10 years later, no one's actually planted any trees. Yeah. Stripe are doing it the kind of difficult and expensive way, right? Mm-hmm. And they funded people like Project Vesta, very kind of leading edge, bleeding edge type technologies. Um, and with a bit of luck, you'll have done some research on this, Walker. Have you done, Have you? did you learn about what Stripe did or, or not? Oh, I not did on a webinar, so I actually know what I'm talking about about this bit. Yeah, why don't uh, why don't you take the lead on this one? Because it's... um. Uh, I, I don't remember all of them. I probably, probably yeah. won't remember many of them, and I'll probably get what I, what I do say wrong, but I'll, I'll have a go. Yeah. So um, what they've got, they've got various different things. So they've got Heirloom, which I think is quite cool, and I'm pretty sure we've spoken about Heirloom before. So Heirloom is like a kind of, um, uh, you might call a kind of idiot cousin of carbon engineering's process, because carbon engineering takes this... Um, uh, they've got a, uh, a calcining process based on calcium ions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that works very quickly. And then you've got the kind of laggard cousin magnesium ions, which are less reactive than calcium. Um, and they there's a couple of changes this makes. So first, your bake-off temperature for calcining is much lower, mm-hmm. um, several hundred degrees centigrade lower, I think, which is makes it – you have a lot more options for how to get – 450 degrees process heat than 900 degrees process heat, right? Yeah. So that is an awful lot easier to engineer, and you can do things like concentrated solar power, or you know, that's a you're getting close to that, a pressurized water reactor, and other ways of generating industrial heat. Yeah. Um, but because this stuff is um, 
a bit slow-witted compared to calcium. It doesn't really care very much about getting bound back onto um, uh, the um, carbon dioxide molecules. So you, you take this magnesium ion, it, it binds with, uh, it turns to magnesium oxide. I think they slake it to make magnesium hydroxide, but I might be wrong on that step. And then they leave it out in, just in the open air to sort of slowly react. So it's not, it's not got a contactor as such, it's just a field that's covered in magnesium hydroxide or magnesium oxide. Um, and it just slowly binds with um, uh, the carbon dioxide and then they bake it off and calcine it again, like Sisyphus pushing a rock up a hill. These guys just <laughs> calcine the same rock over and over again and blow the uh, carbon dioxide that comes off it when they calcine it into a hole in the ground um and then um repeat the process and heirloom is quite interesting because they um have got a they're, they're the time between them make publishing the paper and then making the company was just, i think it was months like i read the paper when it came out and thought that's pretty cool and I, actually it's kind of annoying because i wrote to david keith about the idea of doing something like heirloom right and sending, uh, using magnesium in their process. And he ignored me, he didn't even write back to me, right? And then about a year or two later, Erlen come up with their process. Now, admittedly, I didn't think about doing open-air weathering, and it may have been that that was a kind of crucial innovation step because magnesium is a bit lazy and slow and can't be bothered to react with carbon dioxide very enthusiastically. Sure. Uh, and and, and Erlen's open-air weathering step is, is, you know, is the keys to the kingdom. But it, it's... Um, it's a bit galling when you raise stuff for people and they just completely ignore you and then and then you find someone else doing it. But hats off to Heirloom for getting this commercialised so quickly. It was, I think I'm pretty sure it was less than a year between their publishing their paper and and um uh and, and getting the commercial process launched and having strike on them a load of money, which is pretty cool. Um yeah. although to be fair, they might have put that paper into peer review eight years previously and they just waited for it to yeah. get published. Academic publishing is just the most broken hideous system it really just needs to be completely rebuilt um once you get to the point where you don't need papers for professional progression it's very tempting to just not bother publishing stuff and just yeah. use blogs and stuff instead um so uh stripe have got other stuff as well so um there's some people who want to grind up some rocks and put it in a forest i think on the isle of Mull, from what i can recall is that right have i just made that up Oh, remind me uh, which uh, which uh, business. I can't remember. Have you not got any notes? Because I'm I haven't got any notes in front of me. I should get some, but I've actually got. No, I did take a screen grab on my phone of this, so um, uh, I'll uh, I'll have a look while we're chatting. Um, um, yeah, I'm looking at. It looks like it's not Dreamcatcher because they it looks like they're doing direct air capture. Uh, that doesn't look like. Yeah, rocks. Dreamcatcher is um, the direct air capture one. I think that might be the electro swing one um I, unless i'm very much mistaken um i'm very positive about that because um i like electro swing and the reason for that is similar to the reasons why i like um solar power is because you don't have in the thermally cycle your uh your substrate so if you've got absorbent right mm -hmm. um then you you have to heat up that absorbent as well as providing energy to knock off the um 
the carbon dioxide from the sorbent, right? So there's two processes. You've got to heat this dead weight up, right? Where yeah. it's just temperature raising. It kind of think of it like melting ice. Like so you get you get you get your microwave meal out of the freezer and then you heat it up and from kind of minus 20 to zero degrees centigrade. Mm-hmm. And all of that is just a waste because what you want to do is melt it so you can eat it. Yeah. So if you get a bag of nuts out of the freezer, you can eat them straight away. And like frozen nuts, are, it's quite a weird experience, but you can actually eat them comfortably at minus yeah. 20 degrees centigrade. Try that with a ready meal. You're going to be going to the dentist the following day to have your mouth put back together. So um, they're, they're, they're really not the same uh, the same processes. And, and, and not and heating up that sorbent to knock all the... Uh, um, before you get to knock off all of the... Uh, carbon dioxide from the sorbent um is um uh is a, a, a bit of a waste basically um and electro swing gets rid of all of that um so that is i think that's one of the big reasons why i think, I think the fundamental efficiency um so um verdox is one of the companies that does that um and then they are um uh they have an electro swing. I think someone was, I was reading on Twitter a moment ago, actually. Let me see if I can get the data organised, but um, I actually have some notes available. Uh, wholly inadvertently, I might add, because it's just something across my desk. And I, um, uh, so yeah, they, um, uh, one gigajoule per tonne of captured CO2. I don't have a comparator for that, so, but apparently it's pretty good. I don't know whether it's, well, that's correct or not, but it's, um, uh, I don't know if it's correct that it's good, but I'm, I'm led to believe it's very low power. And in, in, inherently, it seems logical that it would be low energy to, to do that. Um, so looking at these um, companies, you've got Mission Zero Technology, Heirloom, the Future Forest Company, Sea Change, Carbon Built and Running Tide. So Running Tide throw kelp in the sea. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they attach the kelp to some kind of gizmo that sinks after a while. And it sinks the kelp with it into the benthic layers and sort of piles up um on the floor of the um of the sea uh this is very similar to a concept that i think stuart brand came up with about a decade ago 12 years ago and then he had a, 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 a thing called crops which was taking crop waste like corn stover and straw and chucking that in the sea to sit there in big piles that hopefully don't rot um but running tide are doing something similar but with kelp that grows you know, in the open ocean, you're not taking stuff from the terrestrial ecosystem and then dumping in the ocean. You're just growing it where it is. Um, here, then, we've spoken about. Um, and then what have we got here? Um, I'm trying to work out which is which. I kind of remember some of them, um, but I can't remember them all. Um, sea change, I think, was quite interesting. It's a, some, I think it's an electro, yeah, it's electrochemical um uh electrolyzing the sea and if that uh, if that's similar to planetary hydrogen's process then they're making their outputs uh hydrogen um and then i think they might also output chlorine as well um that you can use for industrial processes but the end result is that you realkalinize the sea um I've, I've been trying to get somebody on from one of those companies to talk about the chemistry because i don't understand chemistry and therefore I yeah. can't necessarily um, uh, give people much advice about that, as probably is abundantly obvious from listening to me talk about it for uh, more than five minutes. Um, 
I'm going to, while you chat about some other stuff, I'm going to start Googling. Did you Google any of these companies or not? The Mission uh, Zero and yeah. the Future Forest Company? Uh, I've got a bunch of tabs open in front of me. Uh, so okay. got- it's the Future Forest Company, the one that's on the Isle of Mull and is involving grinding up rocks and throwing them on the forest floor. Is that right? It sounds uh, about right. It looks like it. Um, okay. Oh, well, that's, that's the puzzle solved. What do Carbon Built do? Uh, carbon Built? Uh, that sounds like they're, they would be um, capturing, uh, it sounds like they'd be putting uh, carbon dioxide and putting them in concrete. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, is that correct? Yes. Well, uh, a bunch of other people that do that. Um, is it, yeah. There's Carbon Cure and people like that who do something vaguely similar? Yeah. Um, it's a I mean, similar it, process and they're making concrete blocks, right? Cause you can, when you're casting concrete on site, um, it, you can't really inject CO2 that practically into that. Uh, yeah. It's difficult to shutter it, right? Yeah. Whereas we can, you can read about their uh, technology, but it's, it sounds like the bottom line is if you're putting, if you're putting carbon dioxide into rocks through the, uh, the, the mineralization process, you could, uh, you could either just put those rocks underground, or you could uh, you could just use them to build stuff anyway. Which sounds like a uh, yeah, it's um it's they use a they're uh, they're partnering with a team from the UCLA, and they have a, a system that it just says they transform waste CO two into gray blocks of concrete, and then uh, yeah, yeah, it sounds like it's it so gets, this I, is a, as far as I understand these these companies are all um, there's a whole sort of of them basically. Um, if that's the right word, which probably isn't. Um, and they um, they basically take high pressure CO2 and blow it into the mix when you're, I think you can blow it into um, ready mixed concrete by mm-hmm. similar to making a soda stream drink, right? You're blowing carbon dioxide at pressure into the mix and then it reacts. It makes the concrete go off a lot harder and a lot quicker. Um, which has advantages for pouring because you you often don't have much strength in concrete when you pour it first. You have to wait quite a while for it to go off. And by yeah. injecting CO2, it accelerates the process. And so you end up with more um, more strength more quickly in your concrete, which is handy. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds so similar, like... I think, to, to, to carbon cure. I don't know what the difference is between the technologies are, but uh, we'll perhaps get one of these concrete people on. Um, so which one haven't we done? Um, uh, Mission Zero. I... I think they're an electro swing company, aren't they? Uh, I, I just want to hold yeah. on, uh, stay on uh, carbon uh, and uh, cement for or uh, concrete for a second, because I found uh, yeah. I found a really cool source on uh, talking about because it sounds like you get a you sort of get a double benefit from putting captured carbon dioxide into concrete because on one hand, first you're you're stopping it, you're capturing it as it's leaving the the flue from a coal burning power plant, so that's less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and then you use that captured CO two as uh, part of an active agent for mixing concrete and normally you would use cement and uh the according to uh the uh the netherlands environmental assessment agency the production yeah, you use less you use less um portland cement don't you because yeah. the, the the strength advantages mean you can change the mix so that you use less cement because you that yeah. cement provides more instantaneous strength yeah. um, the, the disadvantage though is that co- concrete weathers in situ right and yeah. a lot of concrete is exposed to the air so, for example, if you've got a concrete roadway or you've got um, uh, concrete blocks that are in a cavity wall, then they will basically get in contact with the air over their life and will react to an extent with the yeah. with the air. Obviously, if it's hotter and wetter, they'll react more quickly and, and not all concrete um, will fully react during its life. Um, and that, there's actually an interesting, another interesting organisation and they've got um, 
their their CDR plays to take end of life concrete, right? Crush it up and then leave it and use it as an enhanced weathering material. So cool. that instead of burying it in a landfill, which is what people would normally do with concrete, because it's kind of bulky, yeah. ugly stuff. Yeah. They, they they crush it to fines basically, and then and then spread it as an enhanced weathering material. Now, I think there are disadvantages to that because sometimes the, the the bulking agents that are used, things like fly ash from power stations, they can be pretty toxic. Yeah. materials have a lot of mercury in them and things like that but um in principle the idea of leaving the concrete out broken up into little tiny pieces to weather is quite a good idea um so this this um i can't remember the name of it do you remember the do you remember the name of the, the startup that crushes oh, out the there's so many of them i there's no way yeah there are a lot it's a, it's a busy space that's sort of yeah. concrete tech i, I mean I, I find it quite interesting um but it is more ccs than cdr uh, and it's also scale limited as well because there's only so much concrete in the world, so you can't keep going and going and going. But it's yeah. it's one of these kind of early sort of not niche applications, but it's uh, it's where you've got a value proposition that doesn't rely on the environmental benefits, right? Um, yeah. You still, you know, people want stronger concrete, so why wouldn't you make it stronger, right? It's not yeah. that expensive to capture CO two, and if you get stronger blocks that are ready more quickly, then there's a there's a good business case for doing it. So. Yeah. Um, just to recap, no, Mission Zero, Heirloom, the future forest company, sea change, carbon built and running tide. Um, uh, you've got a paucity of information from us on those, but you can go and do your own research if you like. So at least it triggers you to do something decent, even if we can't do anything decent ourselves. Um, so um, I, I had a nice little link, actually, um, from one of those companies um, about sequestering um, into uh, rocks. Um, Climeworks of announced that they're going to build in the Middle East, in Amman. So uh, I can't pronounce this. I think it's peridontite. Is that um, right? That, it sounds familiar, peridontite. Um, something like that, anyway. Um, yeah, but there's loads of it in Amman, and it's really good at enhanced feathering. Um, so there aren't that many places in the world where you get sort of large amounts of basalt or alkaline rocks available in near surface rock so iceland's a bit weird because it's in a spreading ocean ridge so um the, the the iceland's made at least partially out of um oceanic crust and not continental crust unlike most of the continents that most of the people that are listening to this are probably sat on at the moment there's not a large amount of basalt in most of those rocks right um and that reacts to co2 so the reason that climb works work in iceland not only do they have abundant geothermal energy which is obviously a good way of making your process cheaper if it relies on lots of low-grade heat. But um, also, you've got lots of nice alkaline rocks, which like very much to um, attach themselves to a bit of CO2 and um, mineralise it out of the way for thousands of years, which is very kind of it. Thanks very much, Basalt. Um, but one of the other rocks that does this quite a lot is this Perry Watsit that I can't pronounce in Amman. Um, and people have thought of digging this stuff up and grinding it and throwing it in the sea. And the alternative um, uh, is to um, blow carbon dioxide down a hole. Uh, one of the advantages in the Marne is it's a very dry, sunny place. So you've got an awful lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, solar hours per year, and it's very intense solar radiation because it's. Um, I don't think it's quite tropical, but it's near yeah. that sort of southern Middle East, so it's yeah. pretty damn sunny, right? Um, and so that solar energy is available to do um, things like if you've got the Verdox process or whatever, or potentially you could use Climeworks process with a heat pump, even if you don't have any industrial waste heat. Um, so you can 
potentially put this together as a relatively nice system uh, and blow lots of um, carbon dioxide down a hole in the ground, which is fine if you've got a tax regime, which means that whatever carbon dioxide you're making, you've got a financial obligation to put it down a hole, like, for example, the low carbon fuel standards in California. Um, and if we can get various different CDR methods down to of order of $50 a ton, which is, I think, roughly the order of magnitude where the low carbon fuel standards is, then it starts to make a lot of sense to, um, to take emissions out of the air. But the big problem with CDR generally, as I never fail to mention when it comes up, is that most of the problem is historic and nobody's going to want to pay to, you know, the trillions of dollars it's going to take to mine all that CDR back yeah. out of the air. There's a lot of, you know, that's, that's $50 trillion just to get kind of, you know, most of the historic emissions out and get us, you know, back to a time where global warming over pre-industrial was pretty modest, right? But yeah. It's not $50 trillion is not a small amount of money. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that's, I agree wholeheartedly. That's pro the main problem with carbon dioxide removal is that there's no, there's no financial incentive. There's no natural financial incentive to do it. And no, no, so there's financial yeah. incentive to go and deal with historic emissions. Conceivably, there could be to deal with future emissions as like pollu pollution permits. But yeah, you know, by the time that people get around to implicate uh, to implementing that at scale, it's going to be a bit late, really, to deal with. Um, you know, it's unlikely to get implemented at scale within the next, say, five years. I mean, people are, there's just too much fossil fuel use going on in the world at the moment for everyone to have to be forced to pay $50 a tonne to go and um, uh, remediate their emissions, right? So maybe in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, when, you know, I'm not the kind of freak with the electric vehicle, you know, the people with the petrol cars are freaks, then um, uh, then it, it might start making sense to remediate those last little bits of emissions with, um, you know, some kind of... Uh, pays obligation but we're well off that at the moment and by the time that we've emitted another five or ten years worth of climate emissions then um you know we're gonna have a bloody big problem to solve you know of the order of two trillion tons yeah um yeah. which is not gonna you know that's not pocket change to go and sort that out and so we're in a position where um we have you know uh, lots of whiz-bang technologies but no obvious um economic way of, of solving climate change using cdr and that's why stellar geoengineering is so interesting because you know at any reasonable annual level of spending it's a kind of at least a multi-decadal if not a centurial problem to solve uh historic um, emissions with cdr and solar radiation management is pretty cheap buys you some time in the meantime but anyway well off topic now what were, what were we supposed to be talking about before i well, we were we were talking about we were talking about startups that um that remove carbon from the atmosphere and store it in like concrete. But I think you make an excellent point, which is that there's no natural financial incentive to remove carbon dioxide. The only incentives in place right now are things that you describe like polluter permits or government grants. But if you capture carbon dioxide, you can't like there's there's no market for it. I mean, there is some market for it. Like there's soda companies that put bubbles of co2 in there coca-cola and whatnot but it's yeah, uh, i mean that, that, but that's a separate thing I mean, you, yeah. the whole carbon capture use and storage market is interesting i mean there are quite a lot of it uses for co2 in things like greenhouses as you know soda pot that kind of stuff but you know we don't have something which is even close to being on the scale um exactly. of, of historic pollution i mean even e-fuels if we start making e-fuels at scale 
they're transient. So you make e-fuels and then you burn them, you know, maybe six months later because you might use them for seasonal storage. But, you know, that you're not taking it out of circulation for decades. And even if you started making buildings out of, uh, I think there's a startup called Solid Carbon, isn't there? That uh, makes uh, uh, an engineering material out of carbon, right? Um, that's captured from the air or captured from flue gas or whatever. But the... Um, you know, even if we built every building and every manufactured item out of that, we're nowhere close to getting the kind of volumes we'd need. Yeah. So, you know, if every if every bowl and plate and every building and bridge was made out of captured CO two, we you know we're not gonna there's not gonna be a trillion tons of stuff, right? So it's, it's a step in the right direction, though. It's better than. No, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm very in favour of that. And one of the big yeah. things that it does is it helps drive down process costs by scaling. So, yeah. you know, if you look at solar, for example, that the niche use cases like satellites were where solar first got deployed. And no one really cared that it was insanely expensive because it's very, very, very cheap compared to launching a new satellite every couple of weeks, right? So, um, uh, you know, these, these edge cases can make a big difference to scaling technologies. And then the edge cases get less edgy. So yeah. eventually you're sort of down to things like parking meters that are, you know, a bit off the grid. And then it gets cheap enough to become, you know, mainstream grid technology. And now in the UK, certainly this time of year, it's sort of early summer, we're generating a really substantial chunk. I think we've tipped over to about, I think the one case we actually managed to get more than 50% of the grid from solar. But that was just like on a you know a particularly cool sunny Sunday where there wasn't much demand. Um, but the point I'm making is that these technologies become economically viable as a result yeah. of scaling them, right? Uh, and we'll see that through um, carbon capture, um, both flue gas and CDR being used to do things like make speciality chemicals or e-fuels or whatever. Yeah. And uh, over time you'll have more mainstream uses that are less niche and less expensive. And that paves the way to large-scale carbon dioxide removal. But there's no way that you can get around the fundamental economics. I mean, nobody's talking about carbon dioxide removal at kind of $1 a tonne for mineralization. It's yeah. just not on the agenda, right? And so... It's, I, I agree. The bottom line is that, yeah, we're, we're, we're making progress and every little bit helps, but it sounds like we still haven't discovered the sort of silver bullet that will ultimately solve the, the climate change crisis no we haven't i mean it's not cdr certainly not from an economic point of view i mean i can imagine this you know the world kind of getting together and putting a tax regime in that over 100 years yeah. might suck enough carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to stabilize the climate but you've still got a pretty miserable century there with some pretty yeah. bad effects um, and if you have you know things like um with depicted in ministry of the future where you have like a massive heat wave death uh toll in india then yeah. you know that's not going to be fun to live through, right? When you get, you know, much of India just becomes unsurvivable due to heat. Yeah. But uh, when I was uh, trying to tug you back onto the track earlier, mm -hmm. um, there was there was some other things specifically on the agenda because we kind of finished the stripe thing, didn't we? You were going to go and bang on about an equivalent load of stuff from the UK government. So why don't we go and do that? That sure. was an interesting thing. I, 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 I tried to get around to doing that, but failed. I got, I think, one startup in. Um, or two, no two, because the second one was um, uh, it's a bunch of people using waste heat from Sizewell mm -hmm. for um, uh, for carbon dioxide removal, and I assume it's a climbworksy type process, a cool, yeah, it's like a low grade heat, um, which I found infuriating because um, I've got a paper on that, um, which I have, I, I did a fair bit of work on it, put it in, got booted at review 
probably because it was rubbish. Um, and then um, I never did anything with it again because I'm too lazy and easily distracted. And then someone comes and implements the idea I had. And, uh, and it, it's very frustrating because I don't get any credit apart from, from our listener. Um, so, um, yeah, that was a bit annoying. Um, so what, what else? There were 20 of them. So we can't go through all of them. But what, what are... What, 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 um, a lot of it was um, various forms of um, natural climate solutions, hippie woo-woo, wasn't it? Yeah. So the, um, I mean, the, the, the article I'm looking at was a, more of a general, um, general just talking about uh, UK public projects where um, they have a... Well, I said, you know, so I sent you a list of the startups today. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, well, there's... Um, the, the the list the list of topics included a UK government funding announcement and then there was a, a yeah. list of uh of uh stripe a, a list of um uh startups from uh like uh sea change carbon built running tide um yeah that, that those those were all just the 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 ones from um uh stripe they were the ones yeah. that I was talking about I'm gonna go and dig this list down now while you're yeah. chatting about it so yeah how much money was it overall because it wasn't a trivial uh, yeah. amount of money was it it was a it was, decent yeah. wedge so o- overall, it was uh, it's 166 and a half million uh, pounds sterling, and then the the specific grant um, that's about grant, roughly 200 million dollars, roughly 200 yeah. 250 million dollars, right? Yeah, and then the uh, the grant allocated, uh, I think, just this past Monday was about half that. It was 86 million pounds, which is uh, 121 million dollars and change. Um, yeah, um, I'm gonna try and look up the. Um... Uh, list of uh, um, uh, startups, if I can. Um, yeah, I've got it here. So, projects selected for phase one of the direct uh, capture and greenhouse gas removal program. So, um, mm-hmm. there was the um, the Sea uh, Cure, um, which is a marine mediated one. Um, I uh, they're basically trying to use. Um, uh, they make. I, I didn't understand the chemistry of this, but it's quite interesting. They they, they temporarily make seawater more acidic. Mm-hmm. which causes the carbon dioxide to bubble out. I don't quite understand how that happens, but I, I've, I've approached them to see if they come on, because that's pretty unusual, pretty revolutionary. Um, and then you've got um, a biohydrogen one, which is um, uh, similar to there's a California project to do this as well. Um, so you're taking um, uh, like biomass and then trying to... Um, you're, I think they're using a so they as far as I understand the process works with this they pyrolyze it mm-hmm. so they burn it without enough oxygen so they get um, uh, a, 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 a stream of um, carbon monoxide out of it and then they use a water gas shift reaction to turn steam and carbon dioxide into and carbon monoxide into carbon dioxide and hydrogen yeah mm-hmm. um, and and there's quite a few people that are working on similar technologies for that. Um, as a yeah. biochar project, um, looking at, you know, uh, taking biowaste and making it into biochar. Um, there's more carbon negative um, hydrogen production that's led by planetary hydrogen. That's interesting, actually, planetary hydrogen, because I didn't realise there'd been a UK funding round. I don't know why they're doing this in the UK, because Greg Rao is American, isn't he? So don't quite understand what planetary hydrogen, maybe they're lost. Um, uh, as Mersey Biochar, it's a carbon negative community energy scheme. So I guess that's um, trying to burn um, or pyrolyze rather for energy. Um, 
uh, more carbon capture and hydrogen production from biomass, uh, negative emissions gasification from DRAX, um, a linked process to pyrolysis, um, the direct air capture powered by nuclear power plant, which is one I mentioned earlier, um, biochar and enhanced mineral weathering. Um, that's similar to who's leading in that? Uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it. There's a company that's doing biochar and enhanced weathering together. Um, Carbfix, I think the name of the no, that's the Iceland project from uh, Climeworks. I can't remember the name. It's infuriating when I do this, and I can't remember the name of stuff. Um, but there's a open field trials of biochar mixed with rock powder. Um, it might come to me in a bit. Um, then what do we got? We're going to go just through the whole lot. It's kind of interesting. Let's do the whole lot. Um, so you've got um, a valorization process mm -hmm. for Mission Zero. Do you remember what Mission Zero do? Um, I can't remember um, what they do. Um, I feel like I've already uh, Emission Zero art. Let me look it up real quick. M Mission Zero, not Emission oh, Zero. Yeah. While you're doing the research live on the podcast, I'm going to go through some of the other ones. So you've got um, Green Shed, Circular Farming System to Support Sustainability Beef Production. Uh, not really my thing. Um, Bio CCUS, who I assume is going to be um, uh, bio, always biochar production and combined heat and power, carbon dioxide capture utilization utilization storage so a bexy kind of thing very um uh uh conventional uh, then you've got a uh, project dream catch which you mentioned earlier uh mm -hmm. and that's Dariga through pale blue dot energy um mm -hmm. partnered with carbon engineering who seem to have managed to get um they've got their claws into the uk as well um yep. so obviously it's about a few dollars um or a few pounds rather um because they've got uh, something up in middlesbrough i think from what i call Cool, setting up a pale blue dot um, factory, and then you've got um, a sustainable membrane um, absorption, absorption apparently, rather than not um, uh, absorption. Um, and that's um, uh, Smart Stack is the brand for that. Mm -hmm. um, CO2 Circulaire, um, I don't know what they do. Um, membrane technology, I think um, this is very similar to gas sweetening from what I recall um the um uh gas permeable or or partially gas permeable membranes are used quite a lot in um gas um sweetening to remove carbon dioxide from um, natural gas in, in the oil industry um but i don't think they're used extensively in dac and i've never quite understood why um but maybe if i'm not misunderstanding it smart dac are doing something like that um you've got a, a enhanced weathering of basalt rock um i think there is actually some um, there's an igneous province near Hadrian's Wall. In fact, Hadrian's Wall is often thought to be a man-made structure, but actually, for a lot of its length, it goes along a large igneous province in the north of England. So the wall is actually much larger than the man-made wall, um, and it's a pretty impenetrable barrier. Which would be one of the things I probably ought to go and see at some point, but I haven't managed to get around to going and doing that. Um, and then we've got Cambridge Carbon Capture, never heard of them. Um, and that is, um, oh, uh, mineral byproduct uses control. So that's CO2 LOC technology. Um, and they're using that to, um, uh, to, to make, um, I think they're making, uh, it's like a cementy type thing. Um, can you look up Cambridge Carbon Capture? I I'm, want to I'm know on the page done. right now. I have done some research. Yeah, it's the um the tech the technology overview. Um, yeah, so it says the um 
at CO2, I think they call it CO2 lock. Um, low, yeah. I can't figure out what it stands for though. Uh, it says the first stage involves the low energy digestion of silicate minerals with um, NaOH, which would be sodium hydroxide, I think, to produce yeah. low cost magnesium is MgOH2. I don't know if that's magnesium hydroxide or magnesium hydrate. Um, yeah, that's magnesium, hydro uh, yeah. magnesium hydroxide. That's, uh, that's the equivalent of slight lime, but the magnesium version of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so it sounds like they're, they're, the first part is a low energy way to produce this magnesium compound. And then uh, the second, um, the second, uh, the second stage is they, um, yeah, they bubble. I think that, yeah, that gets used in, um, yeah, I know what that's used for. It's used in um, uh, cement board. Uh, yep. So they use it on um, a lot of prefab systems use magnesium um, based um, minerals. So that's probably the output sort of um, like a, like a drillable high strength plasterboard i've seen that at a trade show um and then you've got the passive line carbonation project which is um very like heirloom but it's origin power so it's a gas fired um uh calcining process and you're using ambient calcining of um uh, sorry ambient weathering of um uh calcium um hydroxide mm -hmm. um so it's almost exactly the same as heirloom but it's origin power uh, and that's um uh, Tim Kruger's um, gig. Um, he was, I, I mean, I don't know if he's still involved in it. He was pitching that when I was in, um, where was I? Was it Aachen? I went to see them talk about that, or it might not have been. It might be somewhere else. But um, yeah, that's um, definitely Tim Kruger's gig, gig, Origin Power. It's like kind of um, half the um, carbon engineering process, but um, uh, with the rest of it carried out in um, ambient um, solution. Um, and then you've got um, uh, reverse coal, which I um, lap wing energy. Um, I don't know anything about that. I think they, I assume that that's a biochar. Um, yeah, shallow layer deposits, reverse coal. So um, uh, I, I guess that's a biochar burial type thing. Mm -hmm. And then you've got um, uh, circular greenhouse gas removal, GGR solution using biochar produced. Logo biomass, just another. Um, well, there's even more of these. I'm bored of this now. I'm not going to carry on going through all of these. Oh, this one, the carbon neutral petrol. That sounds interesting. Um, I assume that they're making some um, e fuels. We ought to go and do this properly and have a special on this because this is pretty good. We haven't done a very good job on it, um, even by our own standards. We haven't done a, <laughs> done a very good job of that. So we might come back and have another go at that. I'll put a star on that email and come back to it later. Um, and try and do it in a slightly more professional fashion. Um, so moving on swiftly from our utter lack of preparedness on that segment, um, what uh, it just amounted to reading out an email on air, which is not really what a podcast is supposed to be about, but it will do for now. Um, what else have we got? Or is that most of the agenda done? Uh, there is one more, uh, one more topic that we can cover, if you like, which is uh, a bipartisan bill in the United States Congress. Which Yeah, the about... Catch Act. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pretend to know anything about this because you're one of those foreigners from America and you can deal with it. It's not my problem. Yeah. So um, I'll explain it best I can. Um, but it, it sounds like currently there's a, um, uh, there's a, there's currently a, uh, a, something called a 45 Q tax credit, which is something that's currently applied to um, anybody that's involved in carbon capture, direct air capture, carbon utilization, anything like that. And uh, it's not clear if it's something that you have to do yourself or if you just pay for someone else to do it. But it sounds like if you are involved in this tax credit, 
then you can, if you're involved in this carbon capture technology, then you can get basically get a, re, a partial return on your taxes. You can reduce the amount of tax that your company has to pay in the United States. And that tax credit is called the 45Q. And uh, the, um, it sounds like it's currently valid through 2025. And it's in the news right now because currently two uh, United States senators, uh, Tina Smith, who is a Democrat or a liberal from Minnesota, and uh, Shelley Moore Capito, who is a Republican or a conservative from West Virginia, have introduced a bipartisan bill uh, to extend this, this 45Q tax credit through the end of 2030. So give it another five years. And also, um, they want to modify the bill so that instead of getting a return on your taxes, uh, they want to just, you get paid directly. Uh, so yeah, instead it's of, direct yeah. pay and everyone's been making a bit, because basically the problem is that if you specialised in this, you're generating loads and loads and loads of these tax credits, but you've got no taxes to set against them because yeah. you've done loads of this work, right? And yeah. so you just end up with this huge negative tax bill. And the only way to deal with that is to sell your company yeah. to uh, a, a larger company that's got a big tax bill to write off. And you don't want the startups being continually absorbed into these big, behemoth industrial conglomerates which is the natural resting place for these companies to go and uh, if yeah. there was a direct pay so it's basically just the u.s government paying sort of seed money to this industry by it, they're basically fulfilling the role that stripe is but in a different way right so they're buying you know arguably lower quality and less startup-y type credits but they're still buying them at pretty significant volumes and obviously going to 2030 that's nine years time people can do quite a lot of industrial engineering in nine years so you can imagine this stuff really starting to cost the U.S. government a decent amount of money by the end of that time, right? Well, I mean, somebody's got to pay for it. And uh, it's not going to be, as we've discussed previously, it's not going to be anyone in the private sector if there's no incentive for the, the end product, which is captured carbon. Well, yeah, um, someone's got to pay for it if it's going to be done. But equally, an alternative solution with the U.S. government just say, well, no, we're not paying for it. Right? I mean, it's going to get pretty expensive. If they're going to give this direct, I don't know if there's any tape on it, or they're going to be just paying out full whack direct pay air capture credits for people and, C and CCS credits right the way up to 2030. But I mean, I'd imagine that people are going to scale into that and it might even get extended again. There's going to be, you know, a lot of money that's blown into a hole in the ground on account of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I, it wouldn't, it, as these processes get more efficient, it wouldn't surprise me if even Uncle Sam has a problem paying for this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah that that makes sense. Is um, because it's yeah, the, basically the the point of this change to the forty five Q tax credit is it becomes it it's it basically just becomes Uncle Sam is now directly investing money into these companies, which I mean that it's no, no that's um, not that's not true. That's not true. The, 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 because it's not an investment. So there, well, there are two true, differences right. between this and the investment. So firstly, it's not an equity play. So the um. The, the investment doesn't generate any financial return. You're, you're right. That was a, funds, a poor, right? poor choice of words on my part. You're right. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and secondly, yeah. it's it's not um, it's not an investment because it's not a um, a technology. Um, it's much more similar to being a founder customer, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say, for example, you want jumpers knitted out of spaghetti for some reason. Now, yeah. I'm guessing that you can't get those because nobody wants a jumper that's made out of spaghetti. And so you might go to someone who makes spaghetti and say, can you make this into jumpers? And they'll go, what the hell? But hey, have a price anyway. And you might start off with these spaghetti jumpers costing you $500 each. Mm -hmm. 
But then you say, well, I'll have half a million spaghetti jumpers and, and the price might come down to $5 each, right? Because you get smarter at making spaghetti jumpers after a while, right? Sure. Um, and, and the problem with that is that if your direct pay is at um, a fixed level, and I don't know whether it is or not, and you've done a research on this, so you might know, is that if you're paying a constant level of money out, so for example, $100 a ton, and people find a way to make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, so it's not just incidental activity like enhanced oil recovery where you kind of want to yeah. do the activity anyway, but you just put a bit more carbon down the hole because it just favours being slightly more profligate with the carbon dioxide because you've got the incentive. Um, but you've also got the, um, the if it gets down to, say, $50 a tonne, which is probably not going to happen, but not impossible, um, then you might find that people just set up a massive industry to, to, to just blow huge amounts of carbon down the hole in the ground. Now, that's fine to a point, but you know, even Uncle Sam can run out of money after a while, right? So yeah. it could have some pretty um, frightening macroeconomic effects when this sort of stuff starts to scale. But well, that's all to play for. Does this does it taper or not, or is it just a um, is it full fat all the way down to twenty thirty? Well, uh, it, so it's it's it looks like um, the uh, it's a, a flat amount per metric ton, and that amount uh, goes up. Uh, so it, it started in, in 2017, you'd get paid, the, the tax credit was worth $22 and change per metric ton, and it increases linearly per year. Uh, and then it, by 2026, um, it goes up quite a bit. Um, by 2026, uh, you get paid $50 a ton. That, that could blow up quite badly, I'd imagine. Yeah. I mean, like, all it takes is for one company to get that cracked and start doing it $30 a ton. Yeah, and then you can just crank it out, and I mean, yeah, at that point you did you're making twenty dollars a ton of guaranteed profit. So well, let, I mean, let, let's look at what the economic impact would be. So let's assume that say thirty dollars a ton is like a a low end but realistic number. Like I, I wouldn't if somebody said that by twenty thirty they could be doing CBR at um uh, thirty dollars a ton, I'd be like surprised, but not. Okay. Not incredulous about it, right? Yeah. yeah I and so let's assume that Uncle Sam is paying you $50 a ton. So that's a $20 a ton margin, right? Mm -hmm. And so to do the entire global output of CO2, I think we're emitting about what, 40 billion tons a year? Uh, that's 40 billion tons a year. That sounds like a lot, but let me, I can just Google it. Quickly. 40 gigatons of CO2. Yeah. Global CO2. It's about 10 gigatons of carbon output. Um, uh, well, let's assume that's right. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not certain about it, but uh, yeah, no, you're, you're right. It's uh, right? over so, over 36 billion tons a year. So yeah. Cool. So basically, if you're making twenty dollars, so if Uncle Sam's paying you fifty dollars a ton, um, uh, and you're doing forty billion tons, um, then that's going to be two trillion dollars in your back pocket, right? But that assumes that the entire would that people and companies in the United States can suck up the entire global emissions, which it, I. Well, if you're making $20 a ton, you're going to find a pretty quick way of scaling it, right? That's true. But there's probably still, I mean, let me, let me go back to the, the tax credit. Um, Cause it, uh, let's see, it says that in order to be, uh, um, in order to qualify for the, uh, you have to, first you have to meet minimum emission thresholds. And then, um, let's see, uh, you have to also include carbon capture equipment. So, um, 
Yeah, no, I see your point. There's definitely a financial incentive to scale up, but you still have to have the the capital to um to, yeah, to but the, the markets will provide the capital. If you've got a process that can do this, then the markets will just go and give you the money because they can make the money back, right? The point yeah. I'm making is it's like a one-way bet for the investors. They get to down to this level. They've got this kind of copper-bottom guarantee from the taxpayer that they're going to buy this yeah. carbon um, allocation. And my my concern is that you'll end up with – oh, well, it's not a concern. It's a nice problem to have all the carbon being sucked out of the atmosphere. But mm-hmm. from a – from a kind of hard-headed business point of view, I'm yeah. thinking, um, uh, or hard-nosed business point of view, rather than hard-headed, um, the, this could basically bring Uncle Sam down, right? I mean, he's only got so much money. Yeah, that's true. But you could also, the, the, um, currently it's designed, the price is going to go up to $50 by 2026. And so that's only five years to, to get the infrastructure in place and scale it up and bring the price of... Um, of carbon down so yeah, it's but scaling not effects don't right. work on time scaling effects work on scale yeah mm-hmm. so as you produce more stuff i mean it, the, the the scaling effects tend to follow time because normally your scale your your time and your scale tend to be reasonably closely linked right so you get you know if you're doubling the number of spaghetti jumpers that you're making every year then you know your your scale um, follows your uh, your time scale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not always the case. And um, particularly if there's a short-term opportunity with a financial strong financial incentive, then people might just race to scale into this. And I could imagine that this could go, you know, I, I don't think people envisage the price drops that would be necessary to make this happen. But if you look at what has happened historically with some other technologies, like, I mean, uh, solar follows Swanson's law, which is like Moore's law, but just yeah. customized for solar. But f- for a fairly significant period, it was dropping well below the price levels that were predicted by Swanson's law. I think it's you know gone more towards trend over the last few years, but there was certainly a, a precipitous drop a few years ago, which was surprised even I think even Swanson, who made up the law. Mm-hmm. Um, Said he was surprised by the price drop. So these things can happen. And my my, con, my not concern because you know, frankly, Americans paying for the damage they cause is not a huge problem in my eyes. But in terms of the sustainability of the scheme in the U.S. economy, um, you know, I, I would be. I, it, it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility, in my view, that um, that this scheme ends up blowing up. Basically, it would take some pretty impressive technology leaps for it to happen. But I, yeah, I hear you. Know, you. The world's done weirder things in the past, right? We've had some pretty explosive socio-technical revolutions in the past, from you know uh, the political ramifications of atom bombs to the you know the, the change in human population from nitrogen fertilizer and the you know the the, the digitization of the modern economy that leads to um, you know everything from self-driving cars to terrible podcasts, right? So yeah. Well, I, I would just say as a, as a caveat to that, I, I agree with you that there is the potential for this to get out of hand. Um, but I would, I just want to comment that as a, a paying you as a, a, a citizen in the United States who pays taxes to the federal government, I, um, I can think of worse things for my tax dollars to go to than towards the uh, effectively in Iraq, for example, yeah. which is a traditional way that Americans like to spend their money. Um, yeah, not disagree so, with you. Um, yeah, well, we had a fairly ignoble transition, uh, tradition of bombing Iraq and the UK as well, and for equally poor reasons, in my view. Um, 
So um, does that bring us to the end of this unedifying tour of the um, technologies and um, events in the world of geoengineering over the last week or so? Or, oh, I or think we got so. More to do? Looking, yeah, looking at the a quick list of things you sent, it's uh, we talked about Stripe Demo Day and the UK government funding announcement and all the associated um, startups and then a, a lot more. Uh, we talked about the 40Q, uh, 45Q Direct Pay and Catch Act. Uh, we talked about some papers going over uh, advances in technology and understanding for different methods of geoengineering. Um, so that's that's everything I wanted to talk about today. Excellent. So what we'll have to do, we'll have to come back and do the bits that we failed to do even slightly properly. Um, I might go and get, should we go and get the aluminium um, author on? Someone should hit them up because we we did a, we made a bit of a hash of that, I think. I'd like yeah. to understand that a lot better and have the opportunity to quiz them. Uh, and we should also do a special on this UK government thing as well. Because um, there's quite a lot of people from around the world. It's not just UK sort of provincial yokels that they've got in. They've got, you know, decent people from America, planetary hydrogen and carbon engineering. People are, you know, pretty solid companies in the space, although they've got their challenges and problems. And we've not been shy of criticising those firms, um, certainly not carbon engineering on this podcast in the past. But, yeah, they at least we should do them the justice um, of having a decent podcast episode. So maybe we'll do a special issue on that um, if you or anybody else is up for hosting that. Um, but in the meantime, we will let our listener go and um, enjoy their tea. Um, and we will be back to bother you in a week with uh, all things geoengineering. Um, so it's finally just let uh, to me, down to me to say um, thanks for listening. And I just want to reject all of the papers and all of the work that we've discussed and all of the companies and everything in the whole wide world.